that'll stay in your heart all week, God willing, and you'll be singing that uh, as you work and as you commute this week. I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus. Listen, that's just an awesome song. That's wonderful. Thank you for singing that with such uh, passion this morning. As the New Testament opens, the New Covenant begins to be presented coming to reality. As the New Testament opens, you guys know that's the biographies, that's the Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the the life story of Jesus Christ being presented uh, by his disciples and Mark, probably Peter's disciple, and uh, it's fascinating reading. As the New Testament opens, the Gospel writers, not only telling us about Jesus, they're telling us about the culture in which Jesus is ministering. You guys do me a favor up in the booth. Uh, somebody just soften the spotlight in my eyes. Can you just soften that just a little bit in my eyes? It's uh, perfect. It's, tell, it's telling about uh, the, the environment Jesus is ministering in, particularly the religious, cultural environment Jesus is ministering in. For you, it would be like, hey, I'm looking for a church. Uh, What's the church scene look like here in North Fort Worth, North Tarrant County, Keller area, the burbs out here? What do the churches look like? What's the state of the church? I want to find a church. What kind of church am I looking for? What are the churches like? What are the religious leaders like? The Gospels go to great detail to tell you what the religious culture was in which the Messiah is presenting his kingship, his messiahship. And beginning to establish the kingdom of God and his church to carry out its, its mission. It's fascinating reading. The, what the gospel writers all describe are groups like the Sadducees. Is this a familiar term to you? Sadducees, the scribes, people who copied scripture professionally. The Pharisees, that's a word you know. Even today we'll use that in an American uh, context, see, it's such as Pharisee, you know, it, it's got a meaning to us even in our culture. And so these religious groups are being described by the gospel writers. Now here's what I want you to get. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the elders, all worshipped Jehovah God, the same God that you worship. They were monotheistic. They believed the Old Testament was God's word, just like you. They believed it was worth reading, that God was speaking through his word, that it was there to describe how you were made and the covenants that God had initiated to to tell the story and bring forth his will to reunite heaven and earth and fix everything that's broken here because of our sin, to restore our relationship with God, to get this planet fixed, to get our resurrected new bodies, to get everything fixed. This is the story that's being told. Now, they believed the same Old Testament that you believe. They, they worship the same Father God that you call God our Father. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be that. They were praying to the same God that you're praying to when you pray that prayer. <clears throat> Let me say it another way. The scribes and Pharisees believed they were doing God's will. 100%. The Sadducees believed they were doing God's will 100%. And yet, as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story, they go to great lengths to show us that these religious groups, although they claim to worship the same God who's standing in front of them in the form of Jesus Christ, even though they claim to worship the same God, they were opposed to the ministry of God himself who's standing in front of them. They were opposed to the ministry of Jesus Because he told them their worship was just going through the motions. You don't even know what you're doing. You're just going through motions and rituals and rites. and It's lost its meaning. You guys are, some things are broken. Listen, same God, but they did not like the, the message and the ministry of Jesus. And they stood in opposition to it. Ultimately, conspired to have Jesus crucified. And all the while, these religious groups believed deep in their heart that they were doing the will of God. Now, when you see scribes and Pharisees and all these groups in the New Testament, you think of yourself over here 
and you think Pharisees over there. Today I want to put the shoe on the other foot and suggest to you very strongly that maybe the Christians of America have become the Pharisees. Now just softly, I don't want to be condemn, condemning people, I just want you to be thinking, is it a possibility? I mean the language that Jesus used with the religious leader, let me just read a verse or two and you can see what his language was. Matthew 23, 27, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, with an exclamation point, you are like whitewashed tombs, which means white and clean and pretty on the outside, whitewashed painted tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear, you Christians appear, they weren't called the Christians, you God followers, Jehovah worshipers, appear to be pretty and clean and righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now here's the questions I want to ask you, and I've been thinking about these for so many days now. Think about these questions. How do you reconcile that the religious leaders worshiping the same God you worship become the villains of the New Testament? How do you reconcile that when the New Testament opens and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and crossing over into the book of Acts, for these books that open the New Testament, they've painted the religious people as the villains. Because they were the villains. <laughs> they had the keys to the kingdom of God and shut up the house of God and wouldn't let anybody in that wasn't like them. I mean, it had become a ultra, ultra elite club and you couldn't get in the club if you were a Gentile or or, or, or had, you just say, it's just, it was a messed up deal. And the religious leaders became the villains. Well, let me put it to a modern context, because I know that doesn't always relate what I'm saying when I'm talking about Pharisees. Let me say it like this. Could I be a good Methodist, a good Lutheran, a good Presbyterian, a good Church of Christ? Could I be a good Southern Baptist and yet totally miss what God wants me to be doing? I mean, let's just exchange the names. Essenes, Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, priests, chief priests. Let's just exchange the names. Methodist, Baptist, Assembly of God, non-denominational, Southern Baptist, Evangelical. Could I be, modern label pasted here. Could I be, whatever modern label you want to paste onto your Christianity. Could I be a good one of those? For most of you, I think you come from a Baptist or Southern Baptist background. But we have Church of Christ here and all kinds of Catholic and Methodist and everything, could I be that, a good whatever, and still not be doing the will of God? Is it possible I could do what my church wants me to do and expects me to do and still miss what God wants me to do? Now this is the tension that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John open with. Let me say it another way to you. What if you discovered somewhere along your journey as a follower of Christ, what if you discovered that you held a belief or a practice that actually did not align with the Bible? I want you to think about that for a minute. Matter of fact, I might even present it a different way. You're probably going to discover somewhere along your journey as you mature that you hold a belief that one day you realize in Bible study is incorrect. Now what do you do? Let me ask the question very formally. Do you continue doing what you've always done? And just say, well, I just probably don't understand this and just move on and let's just, just keep doing what I've always been doing. Or do you stop right there, pray, wrestle with it, get counsel, seek advice, dig in the word, and make adjustments that are necessary. This really is the tension that I want you to be faced with because this is the tension that made Cornerstone what it is. This is the tension the New Testament opens with. The church is just one generation from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to go back to the New Testament time frame now. You know, birth of Christ, around 30, 33 A.D., crucified, resurrected, 
the, the, the book of Acts starts and their churches are spreading across the Roman Empire. 33, 35, 30 AD, from there to 100 is the ministry of Peter, James, John, all of them right there. In that window up to 100 AD when John, uh, the Apostle John dies around 100 AD. They all ministered in that generation from 30 to 100 following the resurrection of Christ. Within that window, the churches had to make constant adjustments because they were already beginning to have broken beliefs and practices. Does that make sense? Something started very beautifully and right on track in just some decades, some tens of years, begins to drift slightly like driving a car before automated driving and you take your hand off the wheel, it just begins to slowly drift. And that's the way the churches did. And so they had to be corrected. And that's why you read things. Like when the book of Revelation opens, John, writing the book of Revelation, writes to seven Johannan community churches in the modern country of Turkey, Asia Minor back then. And he begins with corrective messages to the seven churches of Asia and says, hey, grab the wheel. And let's start taking this thing back into our lane. And let's get things back the way they need to be. But here's what it sounds like. Listen to this. I'm, I'm, this is what John wrote to Sardis. Here's God's message through John to the church of Sardis. Revelation 3, 2. Watch these opening words. Wake up! All right, so you tell me, what was the condition of the church at Sardis? We don't even need to. This is very simple. They were asleep. They were asleep at the wheel. It just meant the church had been lulled to sleep. How were they lulled to sleep, I'm sitting here thinking. Well, they went to youth camp every July. They went to kids camp every June. They did a Mother's Day thing every May. They did a Christmas pageant every December. They had the calendar filled out. They were going through the motions. They did what they always did. It was just program after program. It was whatever after whatever after whatever. And before you know it, everybody's like, what do we exist to do? We exist to do youth camps and, and Christmas pageants, and that's what the church is. And they just went to sleep. You know what God said? Wake up! That's not the mission of the church. He said, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Now, that's just an example. Let me just fast forward down there to the end of the church of Laodicea. Watch what God said to them. Revelation 3.17, you say, your church mission statement testimony, if I went to the Laodicean church website, laodicean.com, boom, and to research the church before I go, it would say, we are a rich, vibrant, healthy church, and you don't, we don't need your offering, we don't need your tithe, we are good, and we exist, blah, 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 blah. Here's what God said. You say, I am rich, and I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. That's what God's website says about them. Quite, quite a contrast, right? Now the church at Laodicea obviously thought they were doing okay because they hadn't corrected course. So they assumed, I guess they were just going through doing what they do. And God said, wow, we need a major corrective change here. You're not seeing things the way that I see. Let me read verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke, and I discipline, so be earnest, and repent. And the word repent means to turn, to about face. I'm going one direction, I repented, I'm now going another direction. When God uses that word, he's saying, we need a massive correction here. We, we, we may be going 180 degrees in the wrong direction. My point is simply this. A church cannot go for long before it needs to make adjustments. Certainly, I hope you would agree, certainly 2,000 years after the resurrection of Christ, the churches need some adjustments. If they need an adjustment 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years after the resurrection of Christ, surely 2,000 years after the resurrection of Christ, it's possible that not only a church or two, but generations of churches have gotten off track and need to make corrective action. What if a church, let's make it a church thing, not a personal thing now. What if a church came to discover that something was not right in their ministry model? 
could the members of that church come to enlightenment together as a group of followers of Christ? And could that group of people agree that the necessary corrections need to be made and make those changes as a body of Christ in unity and in love and move forward into the next generation to be a victorious and fruitful church? That is the question. And that's the question I'm asked all the times as we coach other churches all around the world here at home. Here's where we are. Let's assess, okay, is it possible to make the changes necessary and for the people to come together and rally together in unity and love around what needs to happen for the church to be healthy? I want you to think about that because that's a little bit of our history. Let's get to more modern times for, for sake of time this morning. During the pandemic, you've noticed that the elders of our church have made decisions a little differently than other churches. And, uh, and that's good. That's because our church follows a different model than other churches. Uh, I think Rick Warren on one side and maybe John MacArthur on the other side have been the two polarizing church voices right now. Uh, our church would definitely, on this issue, align more with, with Rick Warren, who's been speaking, and their church has been making the same decisions that we've been making here at Cornerstone. It's worth reading if you can find the article, but he was, Rick Warren was recently interviewed by the Christian Post on this COVID issue, masks, shut down, all of this, and he weighed in in a very public way. One statement really caught my attention. I want to share it with you. Most churches have only one purpose, worship. And if you take worship away, you've got nothing. They're in a hurry to get back to worship because that's all they've got. I want you to think about that. What happens if the church can't meet for worship in this format, in this assembly, like this? Well, listen, ladies and gentlemen, read a history book. The church has always been faced with issues like this. Maybe not pandemic, but yes, pandemics too. Plagues that swept through Europe and around the world. Flus that have always been with us. But on top of that, government persecutions that have forbade public gatherings. The church has always faced this. How then did it thrive to get us to this moment in America? How did our ancestors deliver this faith to us through all of these centuries to get us to this moment? Well, obviously the church must be bigger than the corporate worship because they've not always been allowed to worship in a corporate. But listen, and just to show you how real this is, Alan, you and I, within the last 10 days, have experienced our disciples in Asia telling us like why are you singing like that because we can't sing loud because our neighbors are hindus and they'll come and stone us and burn the church down if we sing loud i'm talking last week two weeks ago this is what other christian cultures are dealing with so what happens if the church can't worship rick warren says they disappear barna recently dave kinneman head of barna research christian research pollster said one in five churches in america is gone forever they will never come back after the COVID pandemic. They're gone. Because worship was what they had. Now they don't have worship and they can't worship. They collapsed financially and their membership dissolved and went everywhere else. Because that was all the church was. Now, <clears throat> our stance has been very different. Our stance has been that your health is more important than getting a gold star for perfect attendance. So none of you have got a phone call from the pastoral staff saying, where are you? You know? Get, come back together. You just haven't heard that at all, and you won't hear that. Because we know that you're wonderful, mature followers of Christ, and he's leading you to make the best decision for your family and for yourself. You don't need a gold star for attendance. You've got the Holy Spirit. He'll tell you what to do and when to do it and how to do it. What we do know 
is that Jesus taught us with words like this, that the good shepherd prays for his sheep. So we try to follow that model. We've been praying for you. Jesus taught us things like the good shepherd cares for his sheep and loves his sheep and protects his sheep. Now I'll tell you what, I'll be, make an honest confession. I don't love wearing a mask. I don't love wearing a mask. But I'm not so prideful that I'm going to not wear one and claim that it's religious persecution and I can do whatever I want to do at the expense of everyone around me, which is exactly the issue in the book of Corinthians that we're about to teach you later this year. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And the wearing a mask issue is a love your neighbor issue. Please, church, get this. You have freedom. You have liberty. But sometimes you have to set aside your liberty for the good of others and the love of others. So for the sake of loving my neighbor, I will wear a mask and I'll wear it gladly. And if you say, Pastor, why are you still wearing Until it becomes the norm that we don't have to wear them anymore when we're face to face. Let's wear them. Why? Because we love our neighbor. That's why. That's all it's about. It's about nothing else more than that. Government can't tell me what to do. Are you really that prideful that you want to make it that issue? That's not what the issue is about. You're going to lose. You're going to lose the public relations battle with the lost community if that is your stand. Our our challenge is this. As the COVID pandemic fades away and God willing, as they immunize the world here, it's going to fade away this year. God willing, I'm saying. It'll be gone soon and into the background of our lives. And when it does, the churches that do small groups well will be stronger than those that don't do small groups. This is a fact. Because the health of the church does not depend upon the worship. It depends upon a vibrant, small group, relational model inside the church. And our challenge is for our covenant members to take up the challenge of the church's true mission in these next few weeks. It's time for us to reorganize our disciple-making teams and relaunch now that we're in 2021. Now, many of you are new to Cornerstone, and so uh, our pastoral team needs to take a few weeks, which is what we're going to do here in January, if you're new here, to explain why and what is different about Cornerstone maybe than your previous church experiences. Churches all look alike from the outside. It's a building, there's people, there's handshaking, there's coffee, there's donuts, there's song. They all look alike from the outside. And you can basically say, well, all churches are alike. Yeah, not so much. We have a very different model here that drives our church and our ministry. So we want to explain this very slowly. Many of you have been here. You're new and you've been around a year or maybe longer, but you've never committed to a discipleship group. We need to explain to you why that's so important for your spiritual development and your transformation and why that's essential for your uh, fruit bearing for your multiplication many of you have been discipled over the past two or three four years many of you have come through a discipleship process where someone has invested in you you've memorized the word of god together you've been accountable to read your bible they've prayed with you for a year or two you've grown together you've walked together but you launched out from the group and never made disciples of your own. Now I'm speaking to a big group of people right now. Never made your own disciples and reproduced the investment that was put in you and reproduced lasting spiritual fruit in another person. So we need to remind you in the next few weeks why that is your essential mission for 2021. To make a commitment to God, I will reproduce. I will make disciples. Now, to explain this and to explore this, I have to back up and do a lot of explanation on why we are the way we are. To do that, I have to explain to you, which is my main task in the next 10 minutes, is to explain to you the four church types that you'll find all around the world, especially here in America. There are four prevalent church models. Let me explain them to you Hopefully, it'll be eye-opening to you. As I explain the four church models, I don't want you to think I'm being critical because I'm not. I'm only being analytical. I'm just describing. I'm not being critical in any way. As a matter of fact, when I 
prepared this message and just went back through the four models, I see so many mistakes that I made as a pastor. Just going back through the models. I just went and said, yeah, I made that mistake. Yeah, I made that mistake. Yeah, I was standing here in this model, but I had one foot over in this model, like playing Twister, and I had a hand over here in this model. No wonder the church couldn't go forward. I was twisted up like a pretzel. Had the elders and the deacons all twisted up like pretzels. Nobody really knew what they were supposed to be doing because we were experimenting with too many different models. So I see my failures, and I want to be transparent about that. But here are the four prevalent church models. First is the educational model. Let me describe what an educational church model looks like because many of you grew up. I grew up in this church model. Churches with an educational model focus mainly on Bible study and doctrine. You'll hear that word a lot. This methodology uh, utilizes mainly a classroom lecture model. You're in a classroom, most of your church experience, and you have a Sunday school teacher, you have a, a junior high teacher, you have a youth director, you have a classroom lecture style model pervades the church. The educational churches strongly emphasize Sunday morning teaching, Sunday school attendance, midweek Bible study attendance, youth programs, children's programs, Awana's programs, BMA programs, RA programs, programs, okay? The formally trained vocational ministers, the formally trained vocational ministers are responsible for developing and implementing the programs for teaching this Bible knowledge. The members in this type of church attend all of these functions with the goal of striving to know more Bible truth. That is, the, say, you talk to the membership in education, you know, man, I'm just, I'm eager to get to the Bible study, I'm going to hear this series, I want to know more, I want to know all that God has for me, I want to know, I want to know, I want to know. The pastor in this model is expected to provide personal care, personally, <laughs> to every member in the congregation. In this model, a pastor will rarely take any time off because who's going to care for the church if the pastor's not there? The church is focused on educating and caring for those already present, not necessarily attracting new people. That's not their shtick. Their shtick is people come in, here's the people we've got, they're here for a reason and we're here to educate them. The church in this model assumes that if people have come through the door, they are here to gain biblical knowledge because that's what we provide. So if you're here, that's why you're here. You're here to gain biblical knowledge and we're going to provide it and somehow assume that what is being taught will magically translate into Christian behavior outside of the four walls of the church. Now I just want to pause and say, yet when polls are done and statistics are run, this church divorce rate is the same as the world's. Alcoholism rate, same as the world's. Pornography rate, same as the world's. It's all the same as the world's. There is no lifestyle change here. Let me move to the summary of the educational church. The educational church, this church has an educational focus with a classroom lecture methodology. That's how they do what they do. That's their method. The second type church is an attractional church. Let me see if I can describe this, and you'll know if you grew up in it very quickly. The attractional church, this church emphasizes evangelism. Now, that's why I said I grew up in the educational church with one foot in the very evangelistic movement. Okay? That's where I grew up. Now, you just see where you grew up. This church emphasizes evangelism through church services. Bring your lost loved ones to the church so they can, I can lead them to Christ in the invitation. Pastor, I'm trying to get my mom here to the church so you can lead her to Christ in the invitation. I'm going to bring my lost friends in or my family's coming in town so you can lead them to Christ Sunday, Pastor. So be sure and be sure and give us a good one on Sunday, okay? This church, the main mission of the church is to help people make a decision to receive Christ. They emphasize evangelism through church services or organize events in order to attract people. That's why they call it attractional model. Big events designed to attract people so they can make a decision to receive Christ. It is assumed in this model that discipleship will somehow mysteriously and magically happen just by attending church. 
they focus on designing modern church services in order to hold on to people. Come back next week because, or here's, Chris Tomlin will be here. This is what I'm describing, okay? Or here's the, you know, what happened? Tractional church model. They focus on designing modern church services that will hold on to people mainly through cutting-edge contemporary worship. People are attracted, and here's why they're attracted, because entertainment's attracted, but they're also attracted for really, really good reasons, because people have real hurts, and they have real questions that need real answers. And so the messages are designed in an attractional church very well, actually. They're designed to answer those questions and to respond to those hurts. The leaders are focused on using the weekend services as an attractional hook to pull people in while the goal is to provide a uh, message uh, where people can receive Christ. The worship services will always be polished. The worship services will will always be professionally delivered by, by paid guitarists and vocalists. It will be a professionally delivered and run worship service. The message will be deliberately shallow. The message will be will focus on a biblical thought, but it will be very limited in depth on purpose, and it will always be very brief in an attractional church. Religious jargon is never used. You won't hear redemption and sanctification and justification and any other education in a, in a service like this. They will not speak in religious jargon. Dress code will be always relaxed, and they will always promote that the coffee's really good. Anybody seen, you've seen the advertisements, you know what I'm talking about, okay? So in summary, an attractional church has an attractional focus with an entertainment methodology in order to hook you and pull you in. The third church type that you'll see in America is a missional church. A missional church is sometimes referred to as the social justice church, a term which you may be familiar with. But a missional church focuses on biblical actions doing biblical actions. For example, missional church will encourage members to live out their Christianity in a very tangible way through your actions in the community this week to change the community changing Christian behavior. Act this way out in the community, do this out in the community so that we can change the community in this way. Uh, In this model, Uh, Christians are encouraged to be active outside the walls of the church for the purpose of social change. Churches that are missional will focus on feeding the homeless. Churches that are missional will establish women's shelters. Churches that are missional will organize community cleanup days. You understand what I'm saying? Churches that are missional will get the people organized and fired up to go outside the church walls in order to do this community project to, to fix something that's broken, or to act out the values of Christ in front of the lost world. Let, let me summarize it. In summary, the missional church is focused on biblical actions through a community service methodology. The fourth type of church in America is the organic church. And this may be the one you know the least about, an organic church. The emphasis in an organic church is on biblical relationships and fellowship. An organic church methodology utilizes small groups, usually meeting together in a very informal way in someone's home. There may not be a pastor. There just may be a group leader. You will never or only once or twice or a few times a year come together and worship in a large format this way. Almost 100% of your church experience is in someone's home. Very loosely organized in a Bible study format Hardly any structure. Uh, uh, you certainly aren't going to be voting on things in a business meeting or dealing with constitutions and bylaws and, and church corporate things. Not at all. You're in somebody's home. You stroll in there. It's casual. Somebody's leading a Bible study. We go home. We are the church. That's kind of the organic church. And the main emphasis in an organic church is just let's journey together. Let's just journey together for God. Let's just be together in fellowship. I love your family. You love my family. We love each other's kids. We are together. We're God's people. Let's just journey together. Somebody pray. Somebody read from the Bible. Somebody present something, you know, a lesson. And and just very 
uh, uh, loosely structured, and it's all about fellowship and journeying together. In summary, the organic church is focused on fellowship with an organic methodology. Those are the four prevalent church types you will encounter, and every church in this community will fit into one of those very neatly and maybe straddle two of them loosely. Maybe a perfect fit, or it may loosely cross a couple of those models, but those models incorporate basically every church you've ever attended. I mean, as I'm describing it, some of you are saying, yep, that's the church I grew up in, yep, that's the church I grew up in, it's exactly what it looked like. There's a lot to commend, there's a lot of good in those four models. I am not kicking those four churches. I have been those four churches. There's a lot of good to commend in those churches, but let's get to the point this morning we want to make. Something is missing. In all four of those models that pervade churches in America and globally, something is missing because those four models are incomplete. These models may produce converts, they do, but they do not produce disciples. And because they are pastor-centric or worship personality-centric, such churches usually only have one generation, 10 or 20 years of uh, life and victory, because when these cool people fade off to their next assignment, or this cool person fades off to his next assignment, now the personalities are gone that you came for. Does that make sense? A lot of danger in those models. There are decisions for Christ in those models. But there is no spiritual depth in those models. There's no real life transformation and there's no multiplication happening as you see in the book of Acts. It's not that the models are intrinsically wrong. There's biblical support for everything I just described. There's biblical support for gathering in a home for fellowship and having prayer and loving each other. There's biblical support for, for cutting edge awesome worship. There's biblical support for teaching the Word of God. I'm not saying there's not. There's biblical support for things in all of those models. And what they're doing is not intrinsically wrong. It's that the model is incomplete. There's something missing. Now, having lived through those models, I can tell you some of the things that are missing if you want to know details. For example, the educational model fails because it relies on a lecture methodology. Now, I don't want to go into a big, long thing, but if you're a school teacher, you understand VARC learning styles. And any of you can go to VARC.com this afternoon, set up a profile, answer the questions. You'll get an email in a few minutes, and it'll tell, tell you you are a kinesthetic learner or an auditory learner or a visual learner or a multimodal learner. And when you get that piece of paper in your email, you'll say, wow, I need to really pay attention to that when I learn then. I need pictures, and I need graphs, or I need to touch it. Or I, you, it tells you how you learn. VARC are the experts on teaching teachers how to teach and teaching teachers how to understand. I had a conversation just a few minutes ago with one of our members. Not all of our kids learn the same way. If you're a parent of more than one, you figured this out real quick. What worked with one doesn't work with number two or number three because they learn differently. Some you can say it, they've got it. Some need you to draw pictures and some need to touch it and crawl on it, climb on it, jump on it, and kick it and, and be body slammed by it. And then they've got it. Okay, that's just because we learn differently, and VARC are the experts on this. You can research them. Here's what I want to say to you. VARC has released findings multiple times, but here's what they say. The least effective way to teach anybody anything, especially in America, is by lecture. It's the least effective way. Doing what I'm doing right now is the least effective way to teach anybody anything. And yet this is the only method of the educational church. Now, do you see why it's probably broken? The educational model fails because it burns out the pastoral staff. They have to study and read the Bible and learn and feed everybody all the time. Nobody's feeding themselves. Everyone becomes reliant upon the pastor's biblical understanding rather than their own understanding. It fails because the people develop biblical knowledge but cannot apply it. In other words, there's lots of knowledge. Tell me more. I want to learn some new truth. I want to learn something nobody's ever so I want to see something I've never seen in the Word of God before. I want to learn some truth nobody's ever known. Oh, if I can just get to this Bible study, I'm going to learn something new. What are you going to do with it? I mean, honestly, for those of you who've been saved more than 30 minutes, don't you already know more Bible than you live out? 
until we start putting into practice some of what we know. We need to keep quit running after the next truth. For every truth you know, you're going to be held accountable by God. Now, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say stay ignorant because ignorance is bliss, but I just want to say find some balance here. The, the attractional model fails because it leaves people always in a childlike state. They're entertained and entertained and entertained and entertained, and they're perpetually infants or children spiritually since they were only taught in that model. Celebration, victory, prosperity, victory in Jesus. They become disenchanted when bad things happen to good people. When the enemy actually shows up and deals a blow into your life through sickness or touches your children or touches your employment or touches your life in some way, when you realize the enemy is real, you become very disenchanted with Christianity because you thought, I'm really pursuing God by coming to church every Sunday morning, and now look what happened in my life. Why did this happen? Everything I heard must not be true. You see, they've never been taught in that model that following Jesus is risky and costly. Does that ring a bell to anybody here? Just preached it like two weeks ago. Following Jesus is risky and costly. And they've never been taught that, so when it becomes risky and costly they're like wait a second what just happened i thought it was prosperity and prosperity and, and osteen lives in a mansion where's mine you, you see this is the, the the conclusion you draw when trouble comes they can't understand what's happening because they've now confront been confronted by an enemy that they cannot handle and they're presented with doubt and defeat the missional model fails for a different set of reasons the missional model to the poor and the marginalized fails because people are always giving and reaching out, but no one is ever reinvesting in the congregation and building up the people to maturity and spiritual depth. It's all going out, nothing's being reinvested into the people. Let me say it another way that maybe will ring true with you. Loving people following Christ will continually give. And takers will continually take. And there is no end to the need and to the need and to the need and more need until finally the giving are completely burned out because they see that those they're giving to are not appreciative. Or for all the sacrifice we made to give, there's not much investment in the kingdom of God. There's not much fruit happening for the big sacrifice we made and that's the collapse of the missional model the organic church it it, it, uh, it focuses on spending time together with others which is a good thing but it fails because spending time with others can be frustrating and irritating and if you don't understand that you've never made a disciple it can be frustrating or you don't have kids or a spouse or a brother or sister because spending time together is wonderful but it can also be irritating and frustrating especially in this context when there's no clear goal there's no clear starting point there's no time frame there's no expectations there's no measurement tools and there's no ending point and in those contexts, spending time with people over and over and over again, and you see very little spiritual fruit being returned, very little uh, becoming like Christ happening in their life, you will get frustrated and irritated with such people. You get frustrated with people you've come to love if you don't see them becoming like Christ. That's how simple it is. And since the organic church is inwardly focused, the church struggles to include new people. And you will hear a missional church often described as, well, they're very cliquish. Does that, does that word ring true to anybody? Or they're a little cultish, aren't they? Or they're a little cliquish. means outsiders are not really welcome. I, I'm new here, but I'm not in on all the jokes. I'm not, I, I feel like I'm, I'm out here looking in and I cannot figure out how to get on the inside of this church and connect in an authentic relationship. So... Let me see if I can start bringing the plane down. Now, our, our thesis is this, that the purpose of the church is not primarily to disseminate biblical information. That is not the main purpose of the church. We don't believe the main purpose of the church is to serve the community. 
Now, now pause a minute and tap the brakes. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean we're not going to teach you Bible. And it doesn't mean we're not going to serve the community. We just don't think that's the main emphasis of the church. We don't believe the main emphasis of the church is to attract people uh, through production. We don't think that's the main emphasis. All of these are important. All are, are necessary. But none are the main focus of the church. And here's why. Because having read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and into the New Testament further to the churches, those things were not the main thing of the New Testament churches. When Jesus started his church and Jesus' followers started many, many more churches, those things were not the things that were the focus of their churches. Jesus' church was focused on making disciples. So here's our discipleship journey. How did Cornerstone become a disciple-making church? Well, as best as I can analyze, and you can analyze with me, we were an educational church that also had a foot in the missional model. Because we went all over the world doing big events and leading tens of thousands of people to Christ all over the world. It's not that we weren't evangelistic. We were uber-evangelistic. But here at home, we were uber-educational. Classroom, classroom, teaching, teaching, lots of classes, lots of, lots of teaching. We led thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people to make decisions for Jesus Christ as their Savior. I was traveling very extensively in Romania. I mean, I would be here, and then I would be there in, in Eastern Europe at least a month a year in these days, and uh, working mainly with uh, Elijah, but with some other pastors, Corneliova and others, but mainly with Elijah, who's just a dear friend and a great, this is not a better soul winner in the world, great soul winner, great, best preacher in Romania, just the best preacher in Romania, just fantastic, and a fantastic friend, but he and I both had the wrong model. We went all over Romania leading people to Christ by the thousands. Elijah will have to tell you the numbers next time he's here. I don't know, we built, planted 40-something churches. To, you know, I mean, because that was our missional focus. And, and listen, planting churches isn't a bad thing, amen? <laughs> leading people to Christ is not a bad thing. But the model was a little broken. A door opened in India. I went into India. Now, at this point, I knew things were broken in America. I know things are broken in Europe. We're, we're doing what we're doing, but we don't know what else to do. But we know what we're doing is not the thing we totally need to be doing. In other words, we know something's broken at this point. It's 2003, 4, 5 now. We're trying to figure out what to do. Door opens in India. I go into India. You know what I find in India? The same brokenness I find in America and Europe. Churches are same brokenness. Going through the motions, either attractional model or educational model. Going through the same motions or they're the missional model. And so there's no, so I go back to Romania then after we plant all those churches and I go check on all the churches. And when I went back to all the churches, you know what I discovered? They're stagnant. They're dying. They're struggling. They're not victorious. They're not expanding. You know, let's restart the congregation. And for like, I felt like for a decade, all we do is try to restart and restart. And re get the paddles, paddles. Everybody clear? Boom. No, he's gone. Let's start another one over here. You, and that's what you felt like. It was just like you were in the ER, resuscitating churches and Christians. And then somewhere in that India-Nepal journey, I, I decided to go back to school. And I went back to San Diego Christian for another degree. And during that journey, I'm really struggling. Really struggling. I mean, not struggling to preach or lead somebody to Christ, but just struggling because something's broken. And in my heart, I know it. And we look like we're so healthy, but I know we're not everything God wants us to be. And I'm not everything God wants me to be. And a good friend, Larry Bubb, one of my professors, now a great friend, <laughs> he's my professor in seminary, now supports Shilning in Nepal. That's just to show you a little, how cool is that, right? And uh, uh, he began to speak to me about discipleship and, and, and really planted some seed in my heart that turned into a massive, massive ministry shift. And I'm really appreciative to him. But he turned me on to something, and I took what he gave me, and I didn't get offended about it, but I explored it. And I think it's because he delivered it to me in a right way, you know. 
The staff will tell you in those days, they, they thought I'd lost my mind. You, you ever see a beautiful mind and you know, yarn and dots and post-it notes and, you know what I'm saying, I'm trying to connect dots. I, you just can't figure out. Anyway, it wasn't quite like that. But what happened to me is I, I got on the Amazon.com and I began to order every book I could find on discipleship. And so when the Amazon guy would come here, now this is back when you didn't get a delivery every day, okay? When the Amazon started coming every day, the staff was like, is Pastor okay? What is it? It's four more books. Tomorrow, it's four more books. Tomorrow, it's four more books. I ordered every book I could find on Amazon that had anything to do with discipleship until they looked in my office one day and there's a stack of books from the floor up like this tall. And I'm in there, junk, trash, yes, highlight, highlight, put it over here. I did that for months. When I finally emerged from my office with a beard down to here, yeah. No, this is similar, but not quite like that. But when, through that process, I began to figure out what was broken. I began to ask pastors for help. And nobody knew what I was talking about. I began to call pastors that I knew and that I respected. And I began to say, hey, were you discipled? Who discipled you? And to this moment, I've not found an independent Baptist pastor who can answer that question. I found only two or three Southern Baptist pastors who can answer that question. I found a couple of Presbyterians who can answer the question. But hardly anybody can answer the question. Who discipled you? Were you You're a pastor. Tell me, who discipled you? One pastor I asked, he said, here's who discipled me, my deacons. After I was already the pastor. Because I was never discipled. Went through Bible college, took a church, went to another church, prominent Southern Baptist figure right here in the Metroplex. And he said, finally, one of my deacons pulled me aside and said, dude, you need to be discipled. Can I show you what that looks like? And discipled the pastor who then became one of the greatest disciple-making pastors in America today. So I just want to say to you, something was broken. And we knew it. And we began to ask everybody we knew. And nobody even knew what we were talking about. Finally, we had to go outside the church to find parachurch groups who were still doing discipleship because we could only find a couple of churches in America doing discipleship. One's in Arizona, one's in Idaho that were prominent disciple-making churches. We called them, we, talked, we flew our staff up to Idaho and made them sit there and, and spend several days just learning from the church in Idaho who was the real disciple-making church driving the bus uh, back in those years. Most pastors didn't really understand the question we were asking because somewhere along the way churches stopped making disciples they started doing sunday school they started having classes started having programs started having this started having that but they stopped now i can't even now put my finger on the timeline maybe some of you would take that up as a task for your research project i don't know when churches stopped making disciples but somewhere along the way churches stopped making disciples because the leaders, the pastors haven't been discipled, and the deacons haven't been discipled, and the elders haven't been discipled, and the Sunday school teachers haven't been discipled, and the Awana's leaders have never been discipled, but they've all attended church all their lives. But they don't know what it is to sit at someone's kitchen table or on someone's couch and be accountable for spiritual growth and be shown how to lead someone to Christ and be shown how to bear spiritual fruit and to be memorizing verses together and to be accountably growing and to be transformed over a period of years. They've never experienced that. What I'm saying to you is there must be a fifth model because none of the four I've described look like the New Testament. There must be a fifth that someone lost along the way. And what we tried to do was revive the fifth model, which was really the first model, the model of Jesus Christ, a model that focused on making disciples above all else. We implemented, we, we learned, we took from everyone we could find, and we made a discipleship model that would work for us here at Cornerstone in our missions program first. We took the model overseas to India. It was hugely successful. As you can see every week when I'm just showing you pictures, people are being saved, people are being discipled. Why? That's your model working in another country. And by the way, if it's Christ's model, let me say it this way, it will work in every country. If it's Christ's model, it'll work in 33 AD 
and it'll work in 300 AD, and it'll work in 3000 AD, and it'll work in 2021. If it's Christ's model, it's got to work with uneducated people and highly educated people. If it's Christ's model, it'll work with peasants, and it'll work with the upper middle class. Because it's got to be that way if it's Christ's model. We implemented in Asia first to a great success, and then we said, why in the world are we not doing what we're doing in Asia right here in Fort Worth? And we brought it home, and I sent out 50 letters. Spencer got one of those letters, and Jeff and Letty got those letters, and I see many of you, Sarah, that got those letters. Dear Cornerstone member, we're starting a new leadership initiative at Cornerstone. I hate to be too cryptic, but dinner will be provided. I need you to show up at 7 o'clock on this date and learn more. Too much to explain in a letter. I think of the 50 letters we sent out, 48, 49 people showed up, which is typical Cornerstone, wonderful participation. And we took the first 50 people here, and for, gosh, I think August, September, and October, we met on Sunday nights, canceled the Sunday night service, met on Sunday nights back in the big fellowship hall, and it took me months to explain what I'm explaining to you this morning. To talk them through why we were broken and what corrections we needed to make and what it would look like practically. Well, I'm out of time, long out of time. Should have been done 10 minutes ago. Let me see if I can close this. Here's the evolution of our model. This is two minutes. We moved away from large Sunday school classes. We exchanged big groups for small groups. Then we exchanged small groups for even smaller groups. Then we exchanged even smaller groups for what they call micro groups. One, two, three. One on one, one on two, one on three. A lot of adjustments had to be made in the way we do business here at Cornerstone. We took huge risks that everybody would stay in unity, would love. It took a huge amount of trust. For everybody to say, this is not what Christ really called us to do. This is what Christ called us to do. Can we all agree to shift 10 degrees over here and, and get back in the lane we're supposed to be driving in? It took a huge amount of risk, courage, and trust, and I thank the congregation for their unity. Programs that didn't align with making disciples are gone. Staff members that didn't align with making disciples are gone. Budgets, the way we spend money, budgets that don't make disciples are gone. We realigned everything to the fifth model, which is Christ's model of making disciples. There is no cult of pastoral personality here. Here we emphasize that God wants every member to be a minister. Man Brace yourself, woman and teenager. Here we will not teach you that I am more spiritual than you and trust everything I say. Let me get into the word of God and I'll tell you what God says. We're meeting later together this afternoon, by the way. That's not the way it works here. The way it works here is we're all meeting with God every day. And we're all in unity around what he's telling us all to do. He's telling us all to do the same thing. And we're all together and you are ministers. We believe that God wants you to be a pastor to someone else. We believe that God wants each member to reproduce another follower of Jesus Christ. We believe God wants you to make a disciple. Because that's what Christians did in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I can just keep going. That's what Christians did in the day of Jesus and beyond. That's the fifth model, the disciple-making model. Let me leave you with a verse of scripture. It's John 15, verse number 8. This is the way Jesus talked to his followers all the time. John 15 is about me, you vine branches, bear much fruit. That's that chapter. Here's what John 15 says. My father is glorified by this. Colon, whatever follows, modifies. My father is glorified by this. Hire a worship band. Start a homeless mission. Not there. My father is glorified by this. That you produce much fruit. So shall you be my. What's the word? 
It's an important word, and that is the New Testament word for what you are. You are not a Christian. You are a disciple. You're also a Christian, but you're a disciple in the New Testament. Now, I'd like to encourage each of you. We're in the new year now. How about starting a good habit this week? And here it is. I'd like every church member to memorize that verse. Simple verse. Simple verse. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Because that is our mission as a church, and that is your mission for 2021. Our mission in the church is very simple. It's make disciples who can make disciples. I want you to think like a disciple maker in the next few weeks. Now, don't get tense and don't get nervous. There's some great disciple makers here. They'll walk with you. They'll guide you. They'll hold your hand until you can make a disciple. You have to be thinking like a disciple maker now. Listen, let me think like a welder for a minute. Let me think like an air traffic controller or a pilot or a plumber for a minute. Gee, I wonder how to unclog this thing. Well, I guess I need to watch a plumber do it and let a plumber tell me how to do it and stand next to a plumber while he does it. Does that make sense? Well, I want to be a great welder. Okay, well, you need to go talk to a welder and get into a welding school and weld with a welder and learn how to beat the slag off and get it grounded good and grind it down. I mean, you've got to be with a welder. God wants you to make disciples. Can you, can you just make the leap now? You're going to have to be around someone who understands discipleship. You're going to have to drink coffee this year and eat some cake and, and hang out and go to the gym and maybe go on vacation and walk on the beach with somebody who knows how to make disciples. And if you hang out with them long enough and let them invest in your life, you're going to be a disciple maker before this year is done. You say, is that a big deal? It's the only deal. It's the biggest deal of all. Let me quote that verse to you from another version. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. That's what God wants for you, and that's what we're going to do in 21. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask the worship team not to come. I'm going to ask Jeremy just to come and play just for a moment. I'm going to dismiss you in prayer since I used up too much time this morning. I'm so sorry about that, and I, I had a lot I wanted to say to you to get things going I want, you to, I want you just to look inwardly for one minute this morning. Where are you at in the process? Because in this room, we're, we're, we're in all kinds of places. Some of you need to connect to a new disciple and start investing. Some of you have never been discipled. You need to connect to a disciple maker. Maybe we need to go through some reinforming classes to get our heads together on what we need to do. Certainly, we need to reorganize a bit. We need to reconnect with the people we have relationships with. But I would like you, first of all, this morning to say to God, God, I realize this morning you want me to bear fruit and to be your disciple. I want you to say that to God and acknowledge that that is what he wants you to do. And I want you to tell God that you're going to do it. God, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to invest in someone. I'm going to make a disciple. I'm going to bear fruit. God willing. God, if you'll help me, I'm going to do everything you want me to do. Or maybe you need to be praying, God, this year I'm going to get discipled. I'm going to let someone speak into my life. I'm going to make a commitment to hang out with the disciple maker and let them speak into my life and show me how to reach spiritual maturity and how to bear fruit for Almighty God. Now I want you to do the second thing you need to do, and this is what Jesus did. He went up to a mountain to pray in the book of Matthew, and he knelt down and he said, Father, of all of these that I have relationships with, who do you want me to choose to be my disciples? And he prayed about it, and he asked God for direction, he asked God for guidance, and then he walked down the mountain and he began to choose his disciples. I want you to do the same thing. I want you to say to God in this moment, God, who do you want me to disciple? Could you put a face into my mind right now? Could you put a name on my heart? Lord, someone that I have a relationship with or someone I'm trying to build a relationship with, God, who do you, do you want me to reach out to? Who should be my disciple? If you'll keep praying this, God will give you the answer that you're searching for. And if God gives you 
that name, then you have to trust that God is already working on the other side. Be patient. Let him work. And God will bring it together. I'm going to ask you to quietly stand to your feet. Father, praying for our church right now. God, I just want to pray over this congregation. Lord, as their pastor, God, you've assembled a fantastic group of people who love you, who want to bear fruit. God, as we get reorganized for the new year to go and bear fruit and make disciples, God, build those connections of relationships within our life. Lord, if there's some misunderstanding, God, bring enlightenment. Show us what we need to do. Show us what path to walk. Lord, you said if we would trust you, you would order our steps and you would guide our paths. You've already planned the year. You've already seen what's coming. God, in this year, write some fruitfulness in for us. Lord, put some disciples in for us. Lord, we yield ourselves to you, all that we are and all that we have. We give to you afresh in dedication this morning. You are our Savior and you are our King. Lord, may all we do this week be to your honor and to your glory. And God's people said, Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. I'll see you next week.